In times of rapid change, the temptation is to grasp the familiar, seek certainty and hunker down until normality returns. But the question should be, what is normality? In the following, I'm hoping to introduce some of the academic work that is much admired in Bailey Gifford as a means of thinking seriously about what is normal and how historical processes unfold over long durations. I'll mostly use the work of Carlotta Perez, the contemporary researcher working at the University of Sussex. Perez comes in the school of Joseph Schumpeter and presents some of the richest interpretation of real economy change driven by innovation, especially as it relates to the role that financial capital does and doesn't play in, in that change. I'll introduce how Perez exposes how short-term regularities are often dominated by long-term trends, such that short-term theory is often not very useful for navigating uncertainty. Examples range from the effect of commodity price surges in the 20th century to labour market driven inflation more recently. I'll suggest then that so-called steady states are becoming increasingly rare and the belief in reversion to the mean is less relevant than ever before. I'll suggest that ultimately and over the long term, we're better to spend our mental energy thinking about long horizon change driven by the real economy and real innovation than any patterns emergent in financial markets or even economic policy response. I'll finally talk about what regularities do exist, giving some alternative mental models for navigating the future over those longer durations. Namely, I'll highlight how initial periods of income inequality and social tumult are replaced by broader based economic development as disruptive change is fully observed. I'll finish by giving a few examples of the kind of spaces we might expect to undergo it change in. I'll suggest that entertainment and financial technology are likely to undergo continued change within the information technology paradigm. And then, more radically, I'll explore where real economic change might come from beyond information technology, highlighting changes in the clean technology space and in the biotechnology spaces. I think this paints a particularly exciting vision of the future that doesn't necessarily become mired in near-term policy debates. With that, we can jump in. And it's worth first trying to situate uh, Carlotta Perez's work first. Perez is only one example of a kind of economist who sits outside today's orthodox school of neatly defined steady-state models. Historically, lots of economists look like Perez, certainly Adam Smith, Ricardo, and especially Schumpeter, but since Adam Smith, or sorry, Alfred Marshall and the so-called marginal revolution, uh, economists have shifted in tone to viewing e economics as a kind of fundamental or supreme science. This is a very mathematical species of economics. By contrast, Perez looks more like a historian, taking a deep qualitative look at the history of technology over the past 200 years or so. The difference in methodology is really one of attempting to interpret what happens from historical data rather than try to build models that are often elegant but, and sometimes even intuitive, but risk being divorced from historical outcomes and hence the dismal reputation of predictability in economics and the plethora of once-in-a-lifetime events. In any case, Perez gives a good example of theoretical alternatives. It's a particularly recent example of work on the subject and her own commentary and forecasts about the dynamics of the early 2000s bubble and information technology revolution have borne out pretty successfully. I want to suggest that Perez's account can provide us with a useful framework for understanding how change really happens, effectively reversing the polarity 
of uh, how human action uh, ultimately and the confluences of unique conditions also affect economic change rather than look at economic reality as static and predictive. In her work then, Perez identifies five surges of innovation in the last 250 years as kind of paradigm cases. First, the infamous Industrial Revolution, which started in the late 18th century, with the Big Bang event of the opening of Richard Arkwright's mill in Cromford in 1771. The second, uh, replacing it, was the age of steam and railways in the early 1800s. Subsequently, the steel and electricity revolutions in the late 1800s, followed by the age of petroleum, uh, mobility and mass manufacturing in the early to, uh, 20th century, and finally, the information technology revolution, the surge that Perez identifies us as being constituent of at, at the moment. In the comparative study, Perez identifies a lot of similarity between these five so-called surges that it's worth kind of exploring. The first thing to say is they all take a long time to play out, 50 years or so in most cases. These are very long-term effects, uh, certainly not the sort of short-duration economic model we're used to. Second, that the seeds of the revolution are rooted in the end of the prior revolution, the new needs are created by what's come before and solved by things that are newly possible because of the previous revolution, and also funded by the creation of new financial capital that is investable taken from the proceeds of the previous revolution. The third is that each split uh, is split into two distinct phases within the surge itself uh, with different characteristics between them. The first half of each revolution on the Perezian model uh, has new technologies confined to small parts of the economy, few sectors, few people and few countries. This creates a lot of turbulence because you have a lot of capital chasing after a small number of opportunities, uh, often manifesting in financial bubbles. The other is that these technologies are very narrowly deployed in the initial phase. You witness increasing income inequality and social unrest. Returns are unevenly distributed and institutions and methods of organization are deeply challenged accordingly. This results in the kind of uh, political chaos that I think might actually be pretty familiar to us today. In the second half of the waves, the new technologies start to spread out to the wider economy, resulting in a kind of golden era for employment, uh, economic inclusion, growth, and ultimately opportunities for capital de deployment. The tensions in these parts are ultimately, uh, from the first part, are resolved in the second. Perez's surges aren't really about a single innovation, as we might see them in the movies with the light bulb moment in the mind of a genius individual. Rather, it's a big bang caused by a particular commercial innovation, and the big bangs themselves are the product of a constellation of changes that allow these surges. There is a significant institutional or cognitive element to how to implement technology or, or organize groups of people around them. Some parts of the world struggle to adopt because of the incumbency and inbuilt methods of thinking. The model here is, is actually quite a cultural one, one that makes us realize that the real economy change is as much to do with people as it is to do with exogenous innovation. We at Bailey Gifford certainly think about this a lot when it comes to global portfolio allocation between different parts of the globe and between different companies and their ability to tolerate institutional change. One of the most interesting elements of the Perez model is the relationship that she portrays between financial capital and the technological surges mentioned above. For Perez, it is the separation of financial capital from production capital that defines capitalism 
and gives the surges their character. It is surplus profit taken from one surge that ultimately fuels the beginning of the next. And the frenzy is in part the, because the prior surge can no longer provide the returns that holders of financial capital have become accustomed to. Her connection of these two topics is what makes her work in particular seminal and which makes it so relevant to investors. It's worth quoting her directly here, I think. There is a surprising lack of connection between economists studying finance on the one hand and technical change on the other. The followers of Schumpeterianism have neglected the financial aspects of the economic process. On the other hand, those who have studied finance, and in particular financial crises, have seldom given attention to the real economy of production of goods and services, nor have they dealt with technology and its relationship with investment opportunities. The financial theorists that Perez describes are a kind of orthodoxy today, and they define policymaking and portfolio theory. And, as Perez describes, they do so pretty much completely without appeal to technology. They describe the entire field of human endeavor as a giant machine without appealing to what the machine produces or its effect on the function of the machine itself. Anyone who studied economics will remember the infamous total factor production as the unexplained but largely unstudied factor that must be inferred to explain the problems in the model's prediction. Only rebels like Paul Romer or Perez or the complexity theorists of Santa Fe have really thought to study the role that human invention plays in driving the economy. I think it's, it's salient here to pause and consider the climate crisis, as it's perhaps the ultimate example of the problems that Perez and Schumpeter would suggest with contemporary economic or financial thinking. It seems very plausible to me to argue that the crisis is the result or the product of assuming that we are in the mean reverting and stable system, a so-called closed loop. It is arguably exactly the outcome you'd expect if you maximize for the turning of the economic machine with no study of what the product for turning for the turning of what the product of the machine itself is, namely technology. Or to be to be specifically like Perez to ask what the effect of that last wave of paradigm-shifting production entails. In this case, destabilizing carbonization. This is clearly the result of mass manufacturing and energy consumption facilitated by the last wave of technological revolution, and very possibly sets the seeds for the next wave of technological revolution. So, to return to Perez's phases, it's worth trying to situate ourselves to understand what comes next. I'd suggest that we are arguably at the turning point of the IT revolution between the initial installation phase and the secondary global age or deployment age of technology, technological deployment. For the last 20 years or so, these technologies have been limited, as the Paris model would suggest, to a couple of narrow sectors of the economy, mainly retail and advertising, where we've seen the rise of e-commerce and large technology platforms, which are increasingly challenged and represent a kind of totemic type of inequality. But when we look at the market today, we're beginning to see these new technologies are starting to spread out beyond retail and advertising and impact a far broader range of, the, uh, of industries. You can see this in, in most institutions, which are most certainly are not digital. Uh, even high-touch applications in urgent areas of the developed world are not well digitized or calibrated. Can anyone say that information keeping or analysis in hospitals, by way of example, is as good as it theoretically or possibly could be? I don't think so. So even in this most general sense, we can see the expansion of information technology as an ongoing thing. 
However, I'll quote two examples of sectors that are still ripe for uh, IT disruption in this particular phase of a particular surge. The first is financial technology. Up to this point, all we have really seen happen is the removal of checkbooks uh, and banks abandoned branches in favor of applications. We can be so much more radical and we're beginning to see it. Now we've got digitized currencies, fully global and instantly selling payments, much smoother credit and genuine utilization of financial data. We need only uh, look at examples of companies like Klarna, Square or Affirm to see this new wave of IT disruption in finance writ large. Another example would be entertainment. We've all seen gaming become bigger in revenue terms, at least in the film industry over the past decade, but still the best game performance is trapped behind high hardware price points. How much further can entertainment go if, uh, in terms of digital disruption if the entertainment technology becomes more accessible, as new and more immersive technologies become available, and as the demographic and cultural elements become more supportive? Again, examples of companies like Epic Games or SEA get us excited about what is possible. These examples of financial technology and entertainment perhaps set up some of the most predictable growth, but the inevitable question perhaps is what the next surge is likely to be. Where is the most violent growth likely to be, in other words? Perez gives only one suggestion in her work that I can find, and I think it's probably a pretty good suggestion. The other types of technological revolution have largely been inorganic, but I think potentially there is space for an organic technological revolution uh, in the form of biotechnology in one, in one way or another. Where Perez was writing, uh, these technologies were still incubating, but it's come on a long way since. Uh, we now have mRNA vaccines solving pandemics in some of the quickest therapeutic developments in history. And we see biological fabrication facilities being built uh, as capable of producing organic compounds of, of, any, of any species or stripe. The implications of this on health industry and uh, various other industries will be profound, not just economically, but socially as well. The other candidate that strikes me is clean technology. This could be just as deep and wide ranging, replacing existing processes with clean processes for energy production and manufacture that could be genuinely global. I think it is also particularly notable in a way that seems recognizable to Perez that we are going through a kind of financial frenzy here. ESG has risen so rapidly in terms of mindshare and as of these classically defined ESG stocks. In spite of the frenzy, we can see clearly that this kind of innovation, investment and growth is essential over the long term if human beings are to survive and prosper and grow. I think what the work of researchers like Perez and other heterodox names I've mentioned do is not only to complicate the kind of narrow field economic theory that still governs contemporary thinking, but actually also to expose some regularities at a much broader scope. By looking closely at the broader scope of economic development over the past 200 years or so, we find lots of examples of short-term cycles being dominated by broader long-term changes driven by technological change inflation and energy policy quashed by software, or geographic infrastructure problems quashed by new modes of mobility. It is impossible to think about near-term economic results without looking, paying attention to these looming changes that are underway. And helpfully, that technological change has at least some patterns, as the Perezian or Schumpeterian models show. If you want to understand what will happen in the real economy over durations of time that really matter, and with predictable portfolio consequences, 
You don't look at market sentiment cycles or Keynesian aggregate demand. You look instead at what is counterfactually becoming possible where it was not before. What this kind of close scholarly uh, qualitative work ultimately suggests is that the neatly defined mean reverting steady states described by financial and orthodox economic models are an effort to impose order on what is mostly chaos. States of affairs that could be considered odd by such models can be true for very, very long periods of time. This makes the world less predictable in the short term, but still analyzable over longer durations, which is where we feel the mental effort is ultimately best allocated. It's these fundamental changes that we feel both excited about and that ultimately we feel drive investor returns.